Welcome to Speaking Out. Mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. To talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. Uh, it's an enormous workload uh, that we've taken on for our own organisations without many additional resources. And so we keep on having to remind governments that they've got to put the money on the table for some of these things to happen and continue to happen and evolve. But the important thing is being at the table, negotiating and just keeping them accountable as much as we can, which is what we agreed to do. Leadership and Legacy Through Crisis, Advancing Indigenous Affairs in 2021 and Ensuring Cultural Continuity in the Road to COVID Recovery for the Performing Arts Sector. Even though there's been a great uptake in digital technologies and we have digitally really upgraded the way we engage in performing arts on our phones, on our computers, on our television screens, it hasn't flowed through in a financial way for artists. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. The federal government this year announced a new approach to closing the gap between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander populations and the rest of the community. The strategy included a $1 billion administrative plan and a further 17 targets to strive towards. It also incorporated a new redress scheme for stolen generation survivors in the Northern Territory, the ACT and Jarvis Bay Territory. But despite the renewed focus, concerns have been raised over worsening suicide rates in First Nations communities and the growing number of our children caught up in the out-of-home care system. Efforts to address the Close the Gap targets have been the focus of a more collaborative approach between the government and the Coalition of Peak Aboriginal Community-Controlled Organisations since 2019. Auntie Pat Turner is the lead convener of the Coalition, as well as the CEO of the National Aboriginal Community-Controlled Health Organisation, NACHO. Auntie Pat, welcome back to Speaking Out. My pleasure. Always good to be with you. The focus of this year's Close the Gap report was leadership and legacy through crisis, which of course was a reflection on our path through dealing with the coronavirus pandemic. What are your thoughts on the effectiveness of the vaccine rollout for First Nations communities? Well, I think overall our community control sector has done pretty well. I'm a bit concerned that in the areas that you know weren't directly affected by COVID, that a bit of complacency crept in and people thought, oh, we don't have to get vaccinated, we haven't got COVID in our area. But it's now proving with the outbreaks uh, in the Northern Territory that everyone needs to get vaccinated as soon as possible. If people want to avoid serious illness and hospitalisation or even death. So the answer to that is to get vaccinated. So supply is not an issue. Supply has been available on request. So if our archos advise us the quantity and other supports around administering the vaccines like personal protection equipment or other support staff that they need, engagement, community engagement officers or whatever, they need to advise us and we have supported them to the fullest extent possible. So I think we've done a good job. In the areas that are run by state government clinics, I'm afraid to say that I'm not as confident that they have done as well. 
and they really need to pick up their game. Arnie, Pat, it's, uh, as we've spoken throughout the year and as you've just mentioned, the weather response to COVID has been most effective is when it's community controlled. Now, I know that you've spoken a lot about that and I know that I've seen it through my work, but I know for a lot of our listeners, they might not be quite aware of just what a difference the community controlled sector is making. So I wonder if you can just give us your reflections on why that's been such an important component of an effective COVID response and what we've really learnt through this period about the effectiveness of community control. Well, we highlighted the dangers of the pandemic very early. As soon as we had a positive patient uh, or, you know, a positive diagnosis of coronavirus in Australia when a passenger arrived uh, in Melbourne from Wuhan, I knew that this was going to be a problem. And for Aboriginal communities, in March, I went public and said that if the coronavirus into Aboriginal communities, it will spread like wildfire which has proven to be the case. And uh, so why it has taken people so long to just accept the advice that we have given is beyond me. But what the Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Service is good at is establishing a good relationship with the client population, the people who use our Aboriginal health services, and make sure that they share with them as much information about coronavirus and why it's important for people to practice all the public health measures as they can and to get vaccinated. So we've now got uh, people going door to door in quite a number of our health services because there's been this complacency and hesitancy. There's been a lot of really misleading, wrong information on social media and that's been very concerning. And you can't stop that. You can try to counter it with better messaging. And our services have been encouraged to do that because they know how to frame things in the local vernacular so that it makes it more meaningful to the listening audience in their areas. So I think it's the existing relationship that our services have with the community and the clients. I think it's that they're trusted, they're treated with uh, respect. You know, cultural respect and cultural safety are key elements of our service provision in the comprehensive primary healthcare model that we deliver in the main. And, um, you know, I think that people have really understood that and accepted that. So there's a lot more trust between us and uh, and the patients that we have um, and that's all good well for us to be able to get through to our people the importance of looking after themselves during COVID and getting the vaccination. The response to the threat of COVID overshadowed a lot of the really great work you do in your capacity as lead convener of the Coalition of Peaks and that of course brings us back to the Closing the Gap strategy. Overall Auntie Pat, what's your impression of how it's going? Slowly but Surely is what I would say at this point. But things have to ramp up now, Larissa. So we've had our first round of implementation plan and uh, of which the Coalition of Peaks has done an independent analysis of every one of them. We will be workshopping the findings with the government so that they understand clearly what the findings are and how they can improve in their next iteration. So every year, states have to put out an implementation plan and an annual report against that. 
and they have to be publicly available documents so that people can monitor it themselves and the public can know what governments have committed to. So a bit disappointing, the first round, because a lot of existing work that's already been underway is reflected in those in the first plan, but hopefully we will start to see a move to new initiatives and, you know, a real movement in shared decision-making arrangements and partnerships with our people directly, where our people can negotiate with government about how they want what particular priorities responded to, uh, building and strengthening the Aboriginal community-controlled sector and enabling greater self-determination for our people. It's going to take a bit longer on the third one, but it's one that is really important, and that's the ensuring that government agencies who interact with our people are culturally respectful and safe through all their engagement, and that means organisations like hospitals and police and corrections and out-of-care home, out-of-home care, housing authorities and so on and so forth. so, you know, there's a lot of work to do there, but there's a lot of our people who know uh, why that's so important and can assist those agencies to transform. And the fourth priority reform, of course, is the availability of data and information to local organisations and communities to make informed decisions in their negotiations with government. So, um, you know, we'll really have to start putting those measures and see that they're being incorporated in the way that governments are responding to the provisions in the national agreement and fulfilling their obligations under the national agreement. It's been an amazing transition, really, that a lot of people wouldn't have observed about what a difference it's made to actually have the Coalition of Peaks at the table, Annie Pat? Yes, it has. And uh, it's an enormous workload uh, that we've taken on for our own organisations without many additional resources. And so we keep on having to remind governments that they've got to put the money on the table for some of these things to happen and continue to happen and evolve. But the important thing is being at the table, negotiating and just keeping them accountable as much as we can, which is what we agreed to do. Another area of concern for our communities this year has been a proposal by the federal government to tighten identification laws around the voting process. What issues does this raise for you, Auntie Pat? Well, my chairman put out a press, chairperson put out a press release on that, absolutely condemning the intent of the legislation. Where I mean, it's not as though our people walk around with ID on them, and looks to us like a disenfranchisement of our people, especially in remote areas. And, uh, you know, so I think that uh, an appalling, unnecessary piece of legislation, voter fraud in Australia is not an issue. The Australian Electoral Commission has confirmed that time and time again. So why would you put a measure like that in? Why wouldn't you spend your time educating the Australian public about the voting system and how to make your vote count? and to make sure that every eligible Australian over the year, over the age of 18 is enrolled so that they can uh, cast their ballot. But measures that go towards alienating people from their democratic right to cast their vote and their actual requirement, because voting is compulsory in Australia, so you turn up to vote 
uh, you have to show your ID, which you don't carry or you don't have. Uh, and so are you then penalised for not voting? I mean, there's so many things that are wrong with this bill and we are dead against it. And we uh, hope that everyone takes notice and objects to it as strongly as we do. This legislation has been compared to the similar process in the US around voter registrations, and that has been just one part of what's been seen as an ongoing attack on democracy in the United States. I know you always have your eye on what's happening around the world as well. What are your thoughts on what you've seen in relation to the health of American democracy over the last 12 months? I think Western democracies, you know, I mean, I look across the world and I thank God for Angela Merkel and her sensible leadership in Germany, which she's now about to vacate. And I just wish that we had more women leading countries and bringing, you know, the caring for the people and the integrity of democracy being at the centre of the work of government. And I just think that it's failing everywhere. I think Australian politics has deteriorated into a, you know, it's just shocking. So political point scoring, rorting the system in terms of programs that are, you know, basically pork barrelling. And even though people say, oh, we've always put up with a bit of that and we all understand that everyone does it. And, well, that doesn't mean to say it's acceptable. And I think that, you know, that's seen the rise in the number of independents nominating. And interestingly, the number of independents who are nominating for the next federal election, a lot of them are women who don't want to be bound to the parties. So it's very hard to get elected into the House of Representatives if you're not a member of a major party. But the outcome of this next election is going to be very interesting indeed, because I think it might show a fair difference. But I think really, I'm ashamed of the way Australian governments are behaving. And, you know, they really need to grow up and uh, and act in the best interest of the public that they're elected to serve. Well, it is part of our annual tradition of, of having you on our last show of the year for our year in review through Arnie Pat's eyes, uh, that we do get you to give a little bit of a report card or a, a grade to both the government and the Labor opposition in this case for how they've gone through the year. And I think you've given us a bit of a hint about how you might score on that. But overall, what would the report card from you look like on the Morrison government for this year? Well, I think overall, the federal government started the handling of the COVID uh, pandemic very well. And I think the investments that were made for JobKeeper, for example, were absolutely essential, even though we had so many and the increase in uh, the amount of money that Centrelink recipients, you know, was practically doubled, made a difference to people surviving uh, without access to full-time employment. I thought they were good initiatives. Uh, I think the withdrawal of, of the support to Centrelink recipients has been very sad and uh, and there's still not a realistic amount of money paid to our poorest and our most vulnerable members of our society. I think that the companies that profited from receiving JobSeeker when they weren't supposed to uh, or to hang their heads in shame because there's no 
legal requirement for them to repay that money, but it would certainly help the bottom line of the Australian government's deficit if they did repay that money. So you've got all these multi-million heirs uh, that have profiteered off of this, and I think that's wrong. I think it's a a real mark against corporate Australia. So I think that... uh, but the state premiers were the ones in the end that had been delegated so much of the responsibility for the handling of COVID. And that's been mixed, I think, with the closing of borders. And, you know, we feel like we've got a great separation across our uh, federation because of that. And I hope that that is brought to an end sooner rather than later. And, you know, I think that those states like Queensland and New South Wales, and even the Territory sat on its hands a bit to get our people vaccinated, all our people. Because if you live in a country town, you've got a large Aboriginal presence, you know you know everybody in the town, white, black or brindle, everyone needs to be vaccinated. So, you know, there's got to be more cooperation in those areas. I'm, you know, talking a lot about the pandemic. I think the, the one area that really has surprised me has been the rate of increase in housing prices and I think that there's been a run on housing by investors rather than real you know family units and the cost of housing is just outrageous um, and I hope when the uh, you know there's a, there's a rise in housing uh, prices and there's a fall and I hope when the fall comes we don't see all those people who've mortgaged themselves to the hills uh, having to uh, force sales and lose considerably Uh, in terms of their, you know, uh, investing in the Australian dream. I don't think that's been handled well, really, and I don't think governments are doing enough in relation to social housing. So a report card uh, for the Morrison government, I was doing A, B, C, D, E, F, G, etc. I'd say probably a C plus because of how well they did on the pandemic, but how badly other things have been let slip. Um, And I think that the climate change agenda is being treated um, a bit too flippantly. I'd like that to be seen, to be taken more seriously. So factors of leaving the vulnerable as vulnerable as they've ever been in terms of income support and uh, climate change as well as the government has done on the COVID, you know, riding COVID through, still not out of the woods. I hope that they don't drop the ball because predictions are that come March next year, we'll have another upswing in COVID cases as we go into winter. So that's my assessment of the Morrison government. Albanese, really interesting to watch the opposition. I think there are many instances where they could have come out and supported Stations issues a lot stronger and uh, and they could have raised those issues a lot more often in the parliament and I'm pretty disappointed about that. So, you know, Aboriginal housing should have been raised at every opportunity, the overcrowding and how many decades have we been saying that as Aboriginal leaders that, you know, from the community and, and organisational level. You know, every community can point to the need for overcoming the stress on our housing. I think that Labor could have and should do a lot more in that regard. The heritage legislation uh, protection 
while they've been part of a, you know, the inquiry in the federal government, and uh, there's a very good report as a result of that uh, federal government inquiry. Um, you know, we really need to to see uh, that there are a lot of the recommendations brought to fruition. Not a good sign when you see the Western Australian government tabling their bills uh, in Parliament for heritage protection and Aboriginal groups having a glimpse at it before it's introduced to the Parliament tomorrow without the safeguards that Aboriginal people uh, are wanting. The publicity, the spin from the government is that there will be greater safeguards, but whether they satisfy native title interests has yet to be seen because I haven't seen the provisions of the bill and I'm sure many others haven't either. And especially the key people in in Western Australia, the TOs themselves. Arnie, Pat, just um, sort of final bit of our time with you. Um, I wonder if you could perhaps reflect more personally just from your your travels through the year, the very tough year that's been, the very busy year that's been, but from your personal perspective, what was your low point and your high point? Well, my low point was when COVID hit Wilcannia, no doubt about that, because I had warned governments about this. And so had local Aboriginal people like um, Bob Davies had written to governments last year in May, in March, specifically raising Wilcannia. I also raised it in a submission uh, to the COVID uh, inquiry in July last year and I used two community case studies. One was Yarrabah and one was Wilcannia. And everything I said proved to be the case. Um, so you wonder what, you know, what you've got to do to convince people about the need for them to get in early. And, you know, I was disappointed with the police commissioner's refusal to close communities in uh, in uh, New South Wales, particularly when leaders had asked for Wilcannia to be closed to the general public, you know. Um, I mean, if people could have just driven straight through and not been able to stop, that would have helped, you know. But I think the low point was Wilcannia and, and the deaths that came... Uh, because up until the outbreak in New South Wales, we had 153 infections of COVID and no deaths. No deaths until, you know, it hit Western New South Wales. And and look at the, you know, the figures now. I just can't remember them off the top of my head. And my high point was when I took two-week leave recently because I was just so exhausted. <laughs> well, I hope when you do your year in review of 2022, you've had a little bit more time for yourself. You do so much good work and you're such a precious resource in the community. We do need you to look after yourself and you're always giving us that good advice. But just finally, what is are you most looking forward to in 2022? Well, I'm looking forward to our people being as vaccinated as highly as possible, the numbers. And I'm looking forward to the new year feeling refreshed and ready to take on uh, a much more open Australia where all families can be united and we can get back to a more normal type of lifestyle. That would be most welcome. Arnie Pat, you're one of our absolute favourite, wisest voices in Indigenous Australia and we're very grateful to have your insights tonight. So thank you so much for giving us some time, your very precious, valuable time when you are so busy and working so hard. And, you know, just it's just always wonderful to be able to finish the year with your wisdom. Thank you so much for all the important work that you do. My pleasure, Larissa. And let me wish all of the listeners a very happy Christmas and a fantastic 
new year and to you and your staff as well. Thank you, Arnie Pat. Arnie Pat Turner is the lead convener of the Coalition of Peaks as well as the CEO of the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, NACHO. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt. The performing arts sector has been hit particularly hard by the COVID pandemic. The industry was all but shut down in 2019 as the community was forced to endure event cancellations, border closures and social lockdown. But with a majority of the population now approaching full vaccination, it's hoped that we'll be able to return to some semblance of normal in the new year. Playwright and Artistic Director Wesley Enoch will join me shortly to go over the year that's been and give his insights on what to look out for in the performing arts in 2022. First up, though, let's hear some music. This next track is by Emily Waramara and is called Lady Blue.
By all accounts, the past year has taken a heavy toll on the performing arts. With audiences locked down, gigs cancelled and the sector largely overlooked in the federal government's JobKeeper scheme, it was virtually at a standstill. But throughout these challenges, artists and industry veterans alike found innovative and creative ways to survive, demonstrating a level of resilience that can only be admired. My next guest has been an icon of the Indigenous performing arts sector for almost 30 years. Wesley Enoch first came to the national stage as the artistic director of the Coemba Jadara Performing Arts Company in the early 90s. Since then, he has enjoyed roles with both the Queen's and Sydney Theatre Companies and for the past five years as the Artistic Director of the Sydney Festival. Wesley, welcome back to Speaking Out. Oh, it's fantastic. It's been a big year. It's been a big year. (laughs) It has been a big year and if we go back a year, last time we caught up with you, you were just sort of putting the finishing touches on your last year as Artistic Director of Sydney Festival, trying to navigate what a festival during COVID was like. What have you been up to since we last spoke? Well, I, I left the festival and I directed a show for the Sydney Theatre Company. And then, because of all the border closures, I just moved back on country. I went back to Minjirabar, Stratbrook Island, and set up camp there, really. Um, I, I bought a house there when my father died about six years ago. And it's just great to be surrounded by lots of family. I tell the story. It takes me an hour and a half to go to the shop to get some milk because you talk to everyone <laughs> along the way and there's always someone who wants to tell you something about something else, so it goes from there. But there's wonderful moment actually where my uncle took me to the gravesite of my great, great, great grandparents and this wonderful sense of going, oh, yeah, my family have been here for a very, very long time and the sense of connection to that, it's, it's beautiful. That's wonderful. It's lovely to see that you finally got some time to do that kind of ceremony and go back to country after such a mm-hmm. frantic year and the pace of the city. You also have a role at a university now. Can you tell us just yeah. a little bit about that? Because that's quite exciting yeah. too. I, I, I'm at the Queensland University of Technology, QUT, and I'm the Indigenous Chair of Creative Industries. And I, I kind of went, when negotiating this role, it was really about preparing the way for young Indigenous students to come to that university, to come to QUT, but also looking at non-Indigenous students and their engagement with First Nations knowledges and practices and connections to country. So we're doing a lot of curriculum review and also to promote the ideas outside of the university structure as well. My feeling being that what we need to do as First Nations people who are coming into our eldership, you know what we're like, you know, you come over that that hill and you go, oh, that's right, my eldership is over there. How do I actually prepare the world, not just for my generation to make change, but how do you make sure that the next generation that are coming into the world get it better than what we did. We'll have to keep an eye on what you're doing there because that sounds like a very exciting, dynamic space. Now, speaking of exciting, dynamic spaces, we mentioned earlier that as we were going into this year, you were artistic director of a festival that was negotiating the impacts of COVID, border closures, etc., etc. I just wonder now that you've got a kind of chance to look back on the whole year, what was the impact of COVID on the arts? I mean, what did you see in terms of the limitations, but also, I guess, some of the adaptability? I mean, firstly, 
the, the deep fear that our communities, our, our, our First Nations communities would be devastated through this disease. That was always at the fore of what I was thinking, going, what responsibility do we have for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and communities to make sure this disease doesn't wipe us out? And, you know, I, I was constantly thinking about what does it mean for the elders, these living libraries that exist in our in our culture? What happens if they're under threat? And so that that was always in the background of my head in my head I think too that when people were saying oh give me freedoms and you know I don't want to wear a mask and all that stuff I was going oh my god we've got to actually make sure that we don't lose these amazing elders and, and knowledge that we have so you know the arts are one thing great but it's actually about that content that cultural continuity was really important the the second big thing was actually about audiences and saying people who come to to the to the theatre. How do you make sure that they're safe? But also, I, I, I like to say that there, there were two extremes of response. There were those people who would never want to leave their house ever again, so scared that they that they were timid to even leave the door, let alone sit in a room with other people to watch something or walk through a gallery or listen to music as a group of people, even if it's outdoors. And then almost the exact opposite: those who were so gung ho, they were going to lick the doorknobs on on doors to get into places you know they, they were prepared to do anything and you had to kind of find a pathway through those extreme positions to make sure those who were scared were always looked after but those who were gung-ho if you like or over the top in in their their appreciation and want to get back in found some kind of middle ground and uh, i think working at sydney festival that was the biggest interesting thing it was interesting we sold out basically because we had limited capacities and people wanted to engage and be there um and it'd be interesting even now as i'm kind of looking around the country for 2022 how there's two responses will still be there i think and how do we actually make sure that everyone feels safe and then thirdly i think it's about the artists and the artists have been done really really hard um in many ways the companies have been looked after those working in a company have been looked after but the freelance artists, those who make their living by working, being in front of an audience or by ex- exhibiting in front of audiences, um, have been really hard done by. And uh, in many ways, I see the system of performing arts have moved all the, the, the threats, the, the, the negative things down on the line to the most vulnerable in our community. So these freelance artists who have had work postponed, had um, gigs disappear, Um, let's say musicians in particular, the touring networks have fallen apart, they can't make a living and even though there's been a great uptake in digital technologies and we have digitally really upgraded the way we engage in performing arts um, on our phones, on our computers, on our television screens, it hasn't flowed through in a financial way for artists and that would be interesting. I mean, to be to be honest, I think the visual arts have maybe um, escaped that a little bit because online sales of visual arts have been pretty extraordinary. When you think about the Cairns Indigenous Art Fair that's coming up, the the Darwin um, Aboriginal Art Fair, they're, they're reporting good uptake in terms of digital purchasing of art. And I imagine that that's the same for a lot of Indigenous galleries across the country that have a digital um 
platform from which to sell the work because I think that market, those those people who buy Indigenous art, haven't been travelling overseas or interstate or haven't been purchasing um, uh, goods and services in that same way and that visual arts have really taken a bit of a, a leap up as I talk to different gallery owners. So that's a good thing, I guess. And the future might be that we have to maintain a hybrid model for both a digital platform and also the analog, the face-to-face ones. And, and to be honest, I, I found that during this period of time, the impact on the arts, especially in the digital environment, have really been about removing obstacles. So we've removed the obstacle of time because it didn't really matter when you engaged or you could actually pick it up any time at your, at your leisure. Also geography, you could be watching things from Germany or from Kananara or you, you could be engaging any, anywhere in the world. It wasn't really a matter of where you were in, in terms of that. Um, also the financial things disappeared. I saw that a lot of people offering um, digital streaming uh, you know, uh, for free, and, and that's maybe where artists have really been done hard as well, that they haven't engaged in a financial kind of recompense for some of their work. Um, and also people who experienced disability, um, people in wheelchairs or, or, or mobility issues or, or even, you know, hearing impaired or, or visual, visually impaired too, this idea that the digital platform has helped engage uh, all these other support structures along that way. And finally, really about the cultural divide too, that people have been able to take risk in different areas. Um, it was interesting talking to the Sydney Opera House about the the uptake of on their digital platform of people watching Bangara's work, and they say maybe for the first time, where they go, look, I wouldn't pay the money to go and sit in the theatre and watch it, but I'm really interested to watch it on a digital platform. So if there was a cultural divide that that maybe uh, has disappeared a bit in the digital platform area. And I was interested that those, there are some positive impacts to COVID that we have to keep going with as well. Just when you look back at the performing arts and how they've navigated it, mm. how do you um, pick some of your, what would you identify some of your highlights from, from the past year in terms of things that have engaged you? And mm. you can include festival events if you like because it's really just getting a sense of your, your personal taste of, of what have been some real highlights in the performing arts sector over the last year, given all of those amazing mm. challenges but new opportunities. Well, and I should say too, my, my ability to see shows was so curtailed. I'm, I'm used to, well, at the Sydney Festival, jumping on a plane, going to see things overseas, going to see things anywhere in the country. And um, my, my horizon was very close <laughs> during this time. Um, I must admit that the uh, Sunshine Supergirl was one of those big moments where it was um, Sunshine Supergirl, which was a, a uh, basically a biography performance piece uh, about Yvonne Goolagong, her life growing up and all the way through to Wimbledon champion. And it was one of those moments where you went, Ash Barty was number one in the world. Yvonne Goolagong, we remember 50 years ago, she was, you know, uh, a Wimbledon champion. And this wonderful sense of um, synchronicity, if you like, everything coming together, except COVID then said, oh, well, not everyone can get to see it. And and what would be great is that it actually is touring next year in 2022. So it's not going to disappear, which would be fantastic. But there was a, one of the moments where this, this, the stage was set up. Um, Andrea James, who's the director and the writer, set up the stage like a tennis court. So the audience were on two sides and you're watching the performance 
like a tennis match, go back and forward and over the net and back again. And, and there's wonderful experience in Sydney Town Hall that you get, you go, oh, yeah, that was great. That was part of the Sydney Festival, so I got to see that. Um, and another show I saw, which for very different reasons, you know, a solo piece, it was based on um, the picture of Dorian Gray by um, Oscar Wilde and um, Erin Jean Norville, played basically all the characters with screens and technology and live feed and all of this stuff going round and round. And um, Kip Williams was the director of that. And hopefully that will tour as well. This this danger that we've done, done these great shows, but COVID has put a kind of pall over them that means that they may not get up again. And I really want to fight for that, that we go, some of these amazing shows need to be, have return seasons, need to be back in the, the spotlight because they didn't get as big a, um, a bigger bang, if you like, than, than they really deserved. And, and most recently, and I didn't get to see this, and hopefully I will in, in the future, there's, there's two shows that I'm waiting to, to get to see. One of them is Othello, um, Jimmy Barney, who people will know from the TV series. Um, well, Marbo is in the TV series there. He's an actor, an amazing classical actor. Um, he's in two shows that I'm really keen to see. One is Margaret Harvey's interpretation of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which was at, in Adelaide most recently. And Margaret Harvey is a, um, a well, Torres Strait background, a uh, fantastic theatre actor, working a lot in film nowadays, and she talks about this relationship between black and white Australia through the lens of Martha and George, the two lead characters in um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. This idea of this uh, combative discussion around power and who's in charge and who's to blame for the history and things like that. And she's put in a really amazing lens on this classic Edward Albee play. And I thought, oh, I want to see that. And I, I want to see that too now. Yeah. <laughs> go and see it. I, I know it's going to Melbourne. I know it's coming to Brisbane. I, I, I touch wood. I don't know if it's coming to Sydney. But there's a whole range of things there that you know, that work should be on the road and we should be engaging in what that means, that particular show. And the other show is another Jimmy Barney work where he plays Othello in a production which is set in, well, let's call it post 19. 19- 40s, 50s, uh, post-World War II in the Torres Strait. And this notion of the the Torres Strait Islanders who, um, I didn't know this, but uh, Jimmy talks about there were over 300 attacks on the Torres Strait Islands by the Japanese um, that we just don't talk about and that it really galvanised the, the Torres Strait Islanders to, to join the armed forces and to protect their country. And he uses Othello, again, a classic Shakespeare play, which is about a, um, uh, well, a, a, the Moor, as, as, as Shakespeare says, the Othello, a, a black man who is engaging in these discussions about his ability to protect country to, in his warfare and his love for a white woman. And he's... Jimmy's using um, Othello as a way of talking about the Torres Strait Islands, the World War II and this kind of the pride of their service and using Shakespeare as a way to unpack race relations that way. And I think they're two really clever works that uh, are saying to all of Australia, you can engage in this classic work and see how it's relevant for us in Australia by by our interpretation, of in Indigenous Australians, our interpretation of these particular works. And so I'm, I'm really keen to see how those two things will, um, those two works will, will tour and, and have impact in the country. 
it strikes me listening to you, and obviously you are no stranger to this space of reinterpreting something that's a very classical piece of theatre or literature and putting it into a very contemporary and a First Nations lens. Why do you think it's such a fertile ground? Oh, I think that... People naturally put their barriers down. I, I did a work called Black Medea, looking at the Medea story, the, the Greek and, and the Roman interpretation of the woman who kills her children in revenge um, at, at the infidelity of her husband. And and that was like oh, 20 years ago. And this, this notion of sometimes by using a classic, it frees us up to provide and show our cultural perspective more often. And that people are attracted to going, oh, I know that story. I know what that's going to say. And then being pleasantly surprised or or not even pleasantly surprised, being shocked by the openness of the interpretation of that story and how relevant it is for a First Nations experience. And I think they lower their whatever obstacles or boundaries people might put in, in the way of experiencing a First Nations piece. They kind of lower their, their barriers and they are able to come across because they feel that they can walk into that space as well. And also... Indigenous Australians who they can sit with pride going, yes, our actors, our performers, our directors can tackle this material and sit side by side with non-Indigenous classics and traditions and see that we are not lesser than. And so there's a real sense of, um, I don't know, like almost an athletic kind of ability to transform and move from one to the other. You've already spoken a little bit with us about some of the ways in which the performing arts, visual arts have navigated the COVID era and what you hope is retained by that. But as we come out of um, COVID, there's a whole range of very different uh, contemporary questions about you know, how we re-engage, etc. In terms of that context, what role do you see, uh, particularly the performing arts playing as we're kind of coming into this new era, which I don't want to say post-COVID because I feel that might yeah. jinx it, but yes. into the next iteration of our engagement with the, with the COVID pandemic? Well, I, I feel that there are two pathways ahead of us. One is regressive and the other is progressive. That coming out of COVID, I think we can live a life of fear where we go, actually, we need to return to precedent. We have to stop taking risks, uh, financial or otherwise, and cultural risks, and we have to go, let's be safe. And sometimes those ideas of safety mean stepping away from this almost, let's call it quarter of a century, if not longer, discussion around cultural diversity, about um, artistic um, exploration, about the, the, the First Nations kind of storytelling and the importance of that. And that I, I worry that if we, have, we take the regressive path, that we will step back from that and we will see the ending of careers and the end of uh, a curiosity for a whole big expansive view. I am working towards the more progressive view where that now that we've we've shown how important the arts are in our national identity, that almost every Australian, if not citizens of the world, have engaged in either online or um, even in their own practice looking at how important the arts and design are to their life. You know, people have all been renovating and reading books and painting at home and watching things online or telling yarns and stories, making their own music, that we can actually push that a little further now and say, okay, the things that we've been wanting to do for the last quarter of a century, let's push down on the accelerator a bit and go a bit further. 
that you can actually take more risks because you know you're safe. You know you're going to be looked after and that society will take you on that journey. So for me, the performing arts, I'm, I'm worried that we'll find that in, in the name of commercial conservatism that we'll see a lot of things snuffing out. In fact, this is the argument we had at the end of last year um, about the Queensland Theatre Company not doing any Indigenous programming in its work, going, oh, is this the starting of a conservative edge, meaning that we will, we will be sidelined in the future. Um, and almost in reaction to that now, the Queensland Theatre Company is picking up a whole range of shows. And, and I should admit, I'm, I'm directing um, a show for them, The Sunshine Club, which is uh, a musical I wrote 22 years ago. And they're doing a revival of that to say, yes, well, we do need Indigenous storytelling in our, in our program, in our lineup, and our audiences are asking for it. And I go, okay, here's some signals. Take that journey. Be the pro- progress rather than the regress. A Wesley Enoch musical, I'm Already There, which <laughs> actually the, the last thing I wanted to speak with you about tonight was actually a bit more about Wesley Enoch. And I might just start, um, I know we've had a bit of a chat about this over you know the, the last 12 months, but I guess now that we're at the point that we are in our, in our COVID journey, um, when you look back, what are the things that, COVID's taught you about yourself? Oh, look, you say this and I get a a bit of a well of emotion in me as well because it's actually, I have been distracted by the outward signs of success, you know, big jobs, travelling around, earning good money, getting a platform from which to speak and going back home, taking the time out and, you know, Auntie COVID has just said, sit down, listen to the country, listen to what's important and, you know, COVID's taught me that actually it's not about the outward signs of success. There's a lot more things going on inside that you need to talk to. Talk to. And just taking the time out, sitting on country. I, I went swimming in the ocean with my niece and great-nephew um, a couple of weekends ago and just what, feeling the ocean kind of washing over me. And I had forgotten this kind of physical... The, the contact with the ocean. I hadn't been in the ocean for almost two and a half years because of COVID and other things and being distracted and just feeling that sense of being a small part of a much bigger story was really important. And, um, and, and home, you know, uh, Minjiraba, uh, I've got this house, as I said, and going, actually, this is where I want to be more often. How do I make that happen? And, and just keep thinking, as I was saying earlier, about what's the next generation need from me? I don't have kids myself, but this idea of going, you've got to think beyond your own life and, and you know, you've got to think about climate change. We've got to think about cultural continuity. We've got to think about language. We've got to think about what it means for new art forms to appear, new stories to appear. And I feel that that's going to take me on this different journey as I enter into what is now my, my sixth decade uh, this notion of looking forward and saying, actually, I've got to look forward and see a time when I'm not here and how do I make sure that it's a better place for those who come after me? What wisdom for one so young still. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just finally, and we're almost out of time, but if people want to follow you, you have given us a little bit of a taste of some of the things you're involved in, but what have you got coming up in 2022 that we can uh, – Look, look to if we want to um, keep connected with your creative practice and your artistic vision, Wesley. 
Oh, aren't you lovely? Um, uh, the, a show I did for the ensemble called Black Cockatoo about the first Indigenous cricket team to tour to the UK. That's going on tour throughout regional Australia. Um, that'll be in the early part of the year. I'm doing a show called Driftwood, which is a, a migration story from uh, Jewish Vienna to Australia and this whole notion of how they keep art alive, um, this particular family keep art alive through, through their life. So that's a, a, let's call it a chamber musical. And then, as I was saying, the Sunshine Club, this work at the Queensland Theatre Company um, that I'm doing, uh, a remount of uh, a work that I did when I was 30 years old. Can't believe it. And, and of course, the work at QUT, I'll constantly be popping up, I hope, and, and trying to, to tell the narratives that are being forgotten along the way. Well, as busy as usual, but I hope in all of that next year you'll find some time to come in and talk to us a little bit more about each of those projects as they come to fruition and you bring them to life. Wesley. Oh, lovely. And I'd love to see more of your filmmaking too, Lewis. I'd love to see more of that. <laughs> well, there is, there, there, there is more of that on the agenda. But, Wesley, thank you so much for being with us this evening. What a wonderful way to um, conclude our final show for the year to have you with your wonderful vision and your optimism for what's possible going ahead. Thanks, Larissa. That's former director of the Sydney Festival and Indigenous Chair at the Faculty of Creative Industries, Education and Social Justice at QUT, Wesley Enoch. And that's the show for this year. Thank you so much for being with us on Speaking Out throughout the year. And I'd like to give a special thanks to our senior producer, Trevor Dodds, and our producer, Jay McAllister. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program, speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. Have a safe and happy holiday break and join us again for Speaking Out in 2022. I'm Larissa Berendt. Thank you.